This is In Hindsight, Half a Century of Research Discoveries in Canadian History, presented by Dr. Donald B. Smith and produced by the Ontario Historical Society. It's a great pleasure in episode three to talk about a favorite character of mine, one who I've studied for half a century, that is, the famous Canadian writer and lecturer, Grey Owl. He was the most famous quotation marks Indian of his day in Canada in the 1930s. His books, his articles, and the movies that were made about him with the beaver were known throughout Canada and Britain especially. In Canada, he was very well celebrated. Just two examples. In 1936, he spoke at the Toronto Book Fair, the King Edward Hotel, and there was over 2,000 people attended his talk. Two years later, the finest of his talks in Toronto was at Massey Hall. And there he spoke to 3,000 people. This is incredible, attracting such a crowd. In Britain, he made two lecture tours, very, very successful. In fact, about half a million people attended, including on the second tour, most important development of all, there was a royal command performance at Buckingham Palace, and he addressed the king, the queen, and their two young daughters, uh, <laughs> he dressed their two young daughters, and was a big success that was. His message was simple. You belong to nature. It does not belong to you. He was one of Canada's early conservationists, environmentalists. He had a very, very interesting story, in which he told his audiences, and this was included in his books, that he was born son of a Scot who was with Buffalo Bill in the West and his Apache wife. He'd come to Canada because he'd been a knife thrower with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. And, well, that was his story. And eventually stayed in Northern Ontario, learned Ojibwe, or a, a native language. And uh, that's where his experience in Northern Canada really was centered at, in Northern Ontario. His lecture tours continued till 1938, and he gave his best to it. He really did. He exhausted himself so badly that when he returned to his home, which was Beaver Lodge in Prince Albert National Park in Saskatchewan, he fell flat on the floor. He was rushed to hospital, but passed away. April the 13th, 1938. And then this, then this guy fell in because evidence came forward that he was not what he claimed to be. The media on two continents had accepted his romantic story of his origins, and it was pure fantasy. He wasn't the son of a Scot and an Apache woman. He was actually Archie Bellini, an Englishman, born and raised in Hastings. This was his romantic story, which he developed from boyhood. 
he had a very unhappy childhood. He'd been abandoned by his parents and raised by two maiden aunts, the Missies Bellany, Ada and Carrie Bellany. And unfortunately, they were single women. They didn't know how to raise a young boy. And he was, well, <laughs> somewhat of a hellion. They allowed him, he loved nature, and they allowed him to keep a menagerie with animals in the attic. So they were tolerant that way, but they had trouble controlling him. He was good at school, but his fascination, even then, were North American Indians. He read all about them, went in the neighboring St. Helens woods, and pretend he was, pretended he was hunting with, like an Indian. It's just constant. Well, this story of his uh, and his revelation, which was astounding, and uh, the Globe and Mail had ca called him on the day of, uh, shortly after his death, they said he was the most famous Canadian Indian of, all, of, of, of the day. And then the next day, and for the week following, that paper and others throughout Canada, the United States, and Britain were exposing his real story. Well, when I discovered this, it was at Laval, when I was doing my master's, I've discovered all these books about North American Indians, about wildlife, about the wilderness by Grey Owl, and I'd never heard of him. <laughs> that sparked my interest. And so I developed a real interest in him after coming back to, to the University of Toronto after completing my master's. And my PhD thesis was on a different topic, but at the same time, I kept up my Grey Owl research. There was only one biography of him, and it was back in 1939. Seemed a real lot of room for a second treatment of him. So while I was doing my doctoral studies, I pushed away. An extraordinary story occurred in early 1970. And it was at Massey College. That's the graduate college at the University of Toronto. And I was a non-resident. Had, had, had dining privileges. I used to go there quite frequently for lunch. The rule was you had to sign the registry book, a non-resident, to indicate your presence, and then you got your tab and would pay up later, at the end of the month or so. Well, that particular day, I signed the registrar and happened to glance a little bit above my name and saw, well, there was the writer-in-residence's name, Margaret Lawrence, the famous Canadian novelist, she had signed in with her guest, Lovett Dixon. Now, this was astounding because Lovett Dixon was the author of the biography of Grail. In fact, Lovett Dixon had been his publisher. Lovett Dixon was a Canadian who started his own publishing firm in England in the 1930s, and he is the one that brought forward Grail's last three books. It, 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 there, Lovett Dixon, that's the name, very rare name. So I thought, gee, but this is pretty, um, pretty extraordinary. So I wolfed down my lunch, found out where Margaret Lawrence's office was. She had an office in the college. She was a resident scholar. Rushed <laughs> to, to where her office was, and the door was open. And she was talking to a distinguished-looking gentleman, perhaps around, well, mid-60s, and they're having quite a conversation. I interrupted. Um, well, I'm so excited. And uh, just simply said to the gentleman, are you Lovett Dixon? And he said, yes. <laughs> that was the beginning of a friendship that went, wow, about 15 years until his death. 
We became very, very good friends. We helped each other. He wanted to do a second book. He was not pleased with his first biography of Grail and had would like very much to do a second. So I shared my research notes with him, and he kindly helped me with well, some gave me advice about other projects, but also uh, his memories of Grail. Um, so it really became full-bodied. It was extraordinary, just medium like that. And Lovett Dixon and his wife, Marguerite, they became quite, cl quite close. In fact, even so, when, personal detail, but an interesting one, when my wife and I, Nancy Townsend, when we married in 1981, the Dixons gave us a tea set, a beautiful tea set as their wedding present. And we still use it. Well, I was, I now, now, end of the first year of doctoral studies, I was getting a bit burnt out. I'm, I'm constantly studying, and it's time for a break, I thought. And luckily, an opportunity arose. There was uh, one of the other uh, non resident fellows, junior fellows, uh, told me about a job that was for the offing. It was a one-year post, and it was to be the project director to the director of the Canada Studies Foundation. This was set up to help improve the teaching of Canadian studies, which was badly needed. And I applied, and fortunately, I got it. And it was a, a wonderful experience. This was great because it freed up more time for Grail research, and it also provided me with a war chest, my salary, for doing it. So the next year, I really poured it on. I started sending, well, sent out more letters and made more inquiries, and the story started to fill out very nicely. The fact that Nancy Riley, a CBC producer, expressed interest in a documentary on Grail, that was, that was wind in my sails. That documentary was, I, I worked as the researcher, and it was came out in late 1972. So that was another reason to keep going with this project. The Ontario Historical Society, at their annual meeting, invited me to give a talk. Well, one of them. They invited a lot of people, but I was able to. They accepted my proposal, and I spoke, of course, on Grail. And that was at Trent University in, well, late spring 1971. The paper itself was published in Ontario History, their magazine. And that was my first academic publication in late 1971. So back to university, uh, year is over, and I wasn't finished, though, with Grail. I kept up and made four trips to England just on the, well, I was doing my PhD thesis as well. It was on a, um, a Mississauga Indian um, whose name was Kaki Wakonabi, or in English, Peter Jones, that was his English name, and he made several tours of Britain. So I was able to go to Britain for my PhD work and also on the side to do Grail as well. Two of the extraordinary people that I met in England, it was just, again, I'm pinching myself. I can't believe it. But through correspondence, I was able to locate George McCormick. Uh, this was distant. This took a couple of weeks for sure. And it, and the final answer came through Australia. He had, there were relatives in Australia, and they, they gave me his current address. George McCormick was Grail's best friend as a boy, and he was still very much alive. He His career had been in the Army. He was in World War I, and then he'd been in the Indian Army. He, he was in India for a number of years in the Tank Corps. Uh, but now, at this point, he's retired, and he's living in Maidstone, 
which is in southeastern England. And I found this out, and that became, oh, boy, I was so excited. I was so excited that from the train station in London, I got on the wrong train, which is going on the wrong direction. And I didn't realize it took quite some time into the trip. Well, that was pretty embarrassing. But once I realized I was on the wrong train, I was not going to Hastings. I phoned up and, well, indeed, George, that was no, he just had a smile. That was fun. And I did see him the next day. And so I met Grail's best friend. Wasn't that something as a boy? And he told me oh, all kinds of things. So I was able to put the, the best of the tales in my, in my biography of Grail, which came out in 1990 from the Land of Shadows. Now, the second big discovery was his English wife. Now, I don't want to start off too full blast on this, but Grail, is, uh, he really had, to, well, his personal life was quite a mess, and that's British understatement, to say the least. He had, he had several marriages, and he, what happened was Ivy Holmes was uh, um, her, her mother was a good friend of Miss, the Missy's Bellini, who were looking after Archie. Um, you see, Archie, um, that was the, his his dad. That was the the Bellini, George Bellini, uh, was a wastrel, and um, he had married a woman in America. Come back with her; she was half his age, and he abandoned her just after their child had been born. So, uh, Archie Bellini had been abandoned by his parents, by his, by his father. And his, it, it just, it was, that's why the Mrs. Bellini stepped in and looked after him. So uh, this is, their friend was Ivy, Mrs. Holmes and Ivy was her daughter. So Ivy Holmes knew Archie Bellini as a boy. Now, during World War I, Archie Bellini served in the Canadian forces and he was wounded. And as it turned out, he was convalescent in a military hospital near Hastings. He got in touch with his aunts. They got in touch with Ivy. They met. Ivy and Archie fell in love and married in 1917. Now, the problem was Archie had already married. He already was legally married. Now, he didn't tell her, of course. Um, well, most unfortunate. Eh? Uh, well, I met Ivy. That was quite a bit of work, but I, I did. And she never talked about this. I mean, since his death in 1938, when there's all that big fuss, the exposure, they, she had been interviewed then, but hadn't talked about it since. Well, she was extremely helpful. And I'm, I'm, I visited her actually in 1971, but I also came back uh, two or three times. And really, she was very, very good. And I learned uh, all, really, the details that are in my book, From the Land of Shadows, uh, about, about his boyhood that she was able to share with me. Now, how did he... How do we get to this stage where he's already married when he meets Ivy again? The point is that he was fascinated by Indians and he was raised by his two maiden aunts. They had no idea how to read, read a young boy. They had a heck of a time with it. They allowed him the privilege of keeping his animals, his reptiles in the attic, but um, eventually it was too stressful. And he wanted to go to North America and live with Indians. So at age 17, he did so. He went to eventually landed in northern Ontario in Tomogamy on the Quebec border, north of North Bay. And there uh, he he fell in love with a Ojibwe woman, Angel Aguana, and he married her. They had a daughter, Agnes. So 
That's 1910. He was legally married in 1910. And so, well, he left them. His personal life is really, uh, well, uh, he really did. He was a troubled kid, and this this was terrible, really, leaving his wife and his daughter, Agnes. And uh, so he went further west to a place called Bisco Chasing, lived there for a number of years. And that's uh, it was from Bisco that eventually he signed up in the Canadian Army, went overseas, was wounded, and now I've got you up to the point where he's in the convalescent hus- hospital in Hastings, and that's where he meets Ivy. Well... It didn't work. I mean, the idea was that Ivy would join him. The wives could not join their husbands immediately. They had to wait till the war was over. Um, and Archie went back first. He was he was going to call for her later. He never did. Eventually, he did though tell her that he had previously married, and uh, she was she got her divorce on the grounds of bigamy. Um, well, this was wonderful. She'd talk about this with me and she, her life, she remarried and had a, a good life and whatnot, but boy, that was a rocky start, but still she didn't, she wasn't, Archie it was in, still, she did have a positive view of him. Um, despite all that, hard to believe. And, uh, really, I think it's safe to say when I visited her in the early 1970s, she had forgiven him. Back to Bisco. That's where now Archie had several issues. One was drink. He was uh, quite unstable uh, when drinking, and uh, he had uh, well, he had lots to. He was a lot of demons. I mean, his, his marital situation, his, the war, post-traumatic stress from being in the front lines and getting wounded and. He fought as a sniper. It just there's a lot happening here, and so he was in bad shape. Fortunately for him, in Biscotasing, an Ojibwe family, the Espanols, welcomed him, and they allowed him to join them on their winter trapping lines. And it's from them that he learned his. He really perfected his Ojibwe, that's the the native language of the First Nations in this area. And uh, he'd already learned a little bit from Agnes, uh, from excuse me, from Angel, his wife. Uh, but uh, but he wasn't with her that long. So the real training session is after World War One with the Espanol family in Biscotasing. Well, that's his real wilderness experience if you wish, around Bisco. And he had these wonderful teachers for language, culture, the Spaniel family, who, as long as he didn't drink, as long as he behaved himself, he was allowed to stay with them. Well, in 1925, uh, after a number of years in Bisco, in a small town west of Tomogamy, halfway between Chapleau and Sudbury, Archie went back to Mogami, to Mogami, and there he met his love of his life, Anna Hario, an Iroquois woman, uh, just a fantastic woman. I had the good fortune of meeting her. I spent a week with her, actually, in Kamloops. That was where she was living in 1971. And it was Anna Hario who'd been raised in the town, not in the bush. And she very much was opposed to the beaver hunt. She convinced him to stop hunting the beaver, trapping the beaver. And um, she, in effect, made him into a conservationist. Um, it, she also encouraged him to write, and he did. His, he was a natural writer, and his writings attacked, uh, on, on conservation, on the north, on the forest, 
attracted the attention of national parks. They wanted a beaver, in effect, they didn't use this term, but I'll, I'll use it because it sums it all up. They wanted a beaver conservation officer in their western parks. So they gave him a job. And this is now the beginning of the Depression. Hundreds of thousands of people are being put out of work, and Archie gets a job. He gets a job as a, what I, I would short for him, would be a beaver conservation officer in Riding Mountain National Park in Manitoba. And secondly, the place where he was there for seven years, Prince Albert National Park. Oh gosh, this was this is where he wrote his books. This is where with Anna Harrio. Unfortunately, it didn't last with Anna Harrio after a couple of years. She was restless. It was a it's a hell of a job, a heck of a job to be married to a writer. And uh, she she was wanted some kind of more exciting life, and she became a prospector, and they split. Uh, so, uh, but it was it was it was a good a good run, but uh, eventually Archie was on his own. What does this mean? Well, I've struggled with this topic. Well, not so much since 1990. When my book came out, I was able to take some distance from it. And uh, I did come back, though, in a fairly big way, about, oh, 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, in the recent past. I was asked to do the sketch of Archie Bellany or Grail for the Dictionary of Canadian Biography, which is a very, very respected um, collection of biographies of Canadian figures, and um, I did that on that on, on Grail. And I, I really, at this point, I really tried to summarize after after forty years of interest in Grail. What did I make of him? Well, certainly he was a troubled man with many contradictions. But that being said, and well, in my book, I certainly I don't I don't hide anything. I bring those out, but at the same time, I hold to the interpretation offered in my dictionary Canadian biography sketch. The story of Archie Bellany's rise to international fame. This is how I'm quoting now. The ending is remarkable. Having led a life without purpose and direction, in his forties he transformed himself. As Grail, he became the prophet of a vitally important message. Sometimes individuals on the fringe of society see critical issues more distinctly than those in the center. He saw one truth clearly, the need to work for the conservation of the environment, to preserve Canada's forests and wildlife. He was decades ahead of his time. I still hold to that. 